Our Father, we do thank you for these precious gifts of life. Little Shepherd out in California, we thank you for sparing his life and um, his mom being in an accident and for bringing him safely into this world. We pray for him and we pray for Owen as well, who was spared from death, who was spared from being killed even in his mother's womb. And you've brought him into this world. And for both of these, we pray your saving grace in their life. We pray that even very young, that they would come to know you, Christ, as Savior and as Lord. And Father, we now come to your word and we ask that you would unfold for us the glories of Christ. Particularly as we come to this portion of Scripture, which is such a, such a holy portion of Scripture. All of your word is holy, but some, some places more than others bring us into these mysterious truths of the gospel. And so we come this morning to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the truths here are really far beyond that we, our ability as human beings to fathom. But in as much as we can, in the smallness of our minds and the limited capacity that we have, would you unfold to us even more the glory of Christ and the glory of redemption. We ask you to visit us, as it were, this morning with that particular grace that attends your word. And all to the glory and the praise of Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Well, open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We'll be looking at verses 36 through 46. So Matthew 26 verses 36 through 46. And as I mentioned in praying for our time this morning, that this is really one of the most holy places, the places of great reverence, the place of great mystery in all of Scripture, the Garden of Gethsemane. This time when the Lord is now the nearest to the cross that He has been in our looks so far and understanding what lays before Him and what our redemption would cost. And to introduce this, I want to briefly remind us first that the requirement of God for man, the requirement of God for all of us, for mankind to live in fellowship with Himself is holiness. It is Righteousness. It's not some righteousness or some holiness. It is perfect righteousness, perfect holiness. It is perfect obedience. The fall of man was with the entrance of sin into this world. But the entrance of sin into this world did not change the requirement of God because He is holy. He is holy. Jesus reflects this a few times for us or a couple times in the Gospel of Matthew when He said... At the end of chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He reflected this when he was speaking to the rich young ruler who came to him asking about eternal life in chapter 19. And he said, teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? What did he say? Keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. An impossible task, an impossible thing for this man to do or for anyone to do. Because the keeping of the commandments, in order, order to, on the basis of the keeping of those commandments, have fellowship with God, requires no sin. No sin. He said in James 2.10, if you keep the whole law and you stumble in one part, you become guilty of the holy thing because it is a whole. It is a singular expression, as it were, of the perfections of God. And that's what he requires from man. And that is impossible. It is impossible to give. We've seen that as we've looked at the old covenant and even the very statement of Christ that this is the new covenant in his blood. Our sin requires sacrifice. And so the glory of the atonement or the glory of the gospel is in one part then Christ offering that sacrifice, that he is the Lamb of God, that he is the one who laid down his life, the body that was prepared for him to be a sacrifice for our sin. But if that were merely all that Christ did was to lay down his life and to receive to himself and in his body the penalty for sin, heaven would still be unattainable for us. God requires righteousness. He requires obedience. He requires obedience to his word and to his law. And again, that is something that we cannot 
of our own give to God. We need a mediator. And what Christ did for us was not only to bear our sin on the cross and its penalty, but to fulfill for us the righteousness of God. A life that demonstrated and in fact maintained and was the perfect reality of a holy life offered to God in loving obedience and fellowship with Him. So the whole life of Christ really was an act of obedience on our behalf. The very coming and uniting Himself to humanity was an act of obedience of the Son. And then His whole life as the incarnate Son on the earth was a whole life of perfect obedience offered to God. However, there is a unique sense in which the fruit of that perfect obedience is climaxed at the cross. It's climaxed. At the cross. It is the, the crowning event of the obedience of Christ for our salvation. It's the fruit of a life that was completely given to God, and it was necessary for our salvation. And it was a tremendous, tremendous display of the perfection of Christ and the wonder of our redemption. Read with me, if you will, this portion in Matthew's Gospel, and then we'll. Look at this in more detail. Begin in verse 36, and we'll read from 36 down to verse 46. Matthew 26. Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane, and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, and began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and he prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Go back up to verse 36, and let's just briefly remind ourselves of the context of this scene. He says at the beginning of verse 36 that Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And of course, Jesus is now moving ever so close to the cross, the time of his offering himself up as a sacrifice to God, the Father for our sin. And he's feeling it as he gets closer. He's feeling more and more the reality of what lies ahead of him. And so that's the condition that he's in as he's walking with his disciples after the Last Supper to this garden of Gethsemane. They have already left singing the hymns related to the Passover meal in verse 30. They've made their journey to the Mount of Olives and now they have arrived. To this place, which is really Gethsemane, a a garden along the western slopes, most likely of the Mount of Olives. So you could look outside of Jerusalem and you can even today uh, see it there, the likely location where Jesus was here with his disciples. And he travels there with them to this familiar place, both Luke twenty-two forty-five, or excuse me, uh, John chapter 18, verse 2, tells us that this was a place that he often met with his disciples, that he would often go with them there. He would meet with them there, no doubt, to spend time in fellowship, to get away from the crowds that were always around them, and he would go there at times also to pray. He'd go there to pray. Now, in fact, this garden uh, may have been the property of a wealthy follower or believer of Jesus. Often some wealthy people, Jews, would have 
uh, gardens, olive gardens, uh, there along the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus often went there. Likely it was a wealthy follower of him or believer in him who gave them opportunity to use it. Some suggest maybe that it even was Joseph of Arimathea. There's no way to prove that. But what we do know is it was a place that he often met with his disciples. And he knew that it would be the place that Judas would find them in only a few short hours to betray him over to the Roman authorities and to ultimately the Jews and then even more ultimately to the cross. So here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the reality again of what lays before him is really intensifying in his heart. He knows that. He's already indicated, for example, in uh, Luke chapter 12, 50 and John chapter 12, that he has a baptism to undergo, that he has a suffering to undergo, and he knows it lays before him. And John 12 tells us that even before he got to this point, his soul had experienced some trouble, some trouble at the thought of it. But this is that trouble in its most intensive form because here he is and he knows what is in front of him and he feels the weight of it. He feels the weight of it. And so I want us to notice first here then the condition of Christ's obedience. The conditions of Christ's obedience. That is the conditions in which Christ obeyed the Father. In which he obeyed the Father. Look again at verse 36. He was in this place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Sit here while I go over there and pray. This is really quite a striking request of the Lord. Not really so much that he was going to pray. He often went by himself to pray. Mark chapter 1 tells us he went to a secluded place and he'd pray all night. And that was not uncommon in the life of Jesus. It wasn't uncommon for Jesus to take Peter, James, and John alone at special times of prayer or to witness special parts of his ministry. There was nothing unusual about that. There was nothing unusual about his wanting time alone with this inner circle or time alone with God. What is unusual here is the circumstances. What he's doing here is he takes Peter and James and John along with him is he's bringing his closest companions to give him comfort. Comfort in the midst of a great emotional distress. Great emotional distress. Look at what he says in verse 37. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Grieved and distressed or distressed and troubled. You could translate that either way. And again, this is a striking admission. Jesus, throughout every experience in his life here on earth was never troubled. He was never anxious. He was never worried. He was never fearful, except in light of the cross, except in light of what laid before him for the redemption of men. No threat of man, no threat of Herod, no threat of the Jews who often tried to stone him or throw him off of the cliff or kill him and who tried to threaten him with their presence ever caused him the least disturbance of soul. Not even facing a legion of demons within the demoniac or Satan himself ever caused him the least worry or fear. And yet here in this moment with the approaching of his sacrifice... He admits to these, his closest companions, in verse 38, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And the amazing thing then about him taking these disciples with him is that he's taking them with him for his own comfort. His own comfort. He's overwhelmed with the emotions that he feels In the light of what he knows is coming, his soul is grieved to the point of death. And this is beyond merely just an intense emotion. And that idea of to the point of death is really like him saying this, is that it's an emotion that is so strong and is so intense, it could kill me. It's possible to understand that statement as meaning that death would be preferable to the way that I feel. And either way, it communicates the same thing. He's overwhelmed. He's absolutely overwhelmed. 
grief so great, he feels as though it could bring about his death. And more than anywhere then in all of Scripture, the humanity of Christ is highlighted here. The humanity of Christ. He was a man. He was a man, though the son who knew what was coming to him and it grieved him. He was a man who needed human comfort and fellowship, which is why he called his disciples. And it's here in his distress and in his trouble of soul that he displays the weakness and the vulnerability of his human soul more than anywhere in his humanity. And yet, never once did these depths of emotion disturb his commitment and his obedience to God. Again, he's looking for his friends here, his closest companions, comfort. He needs something from them. He's some kind of relief he's hoping to gain by their nearness to him, and not only their nearness to him, but their prayer on his behalf. He says, remain here and keep watch with me. It's like he's saying to them, don't leave me. Stay near to me. I need you now more than any other time in my ministry. Watch with me. Pray with me. And the idea is not only watch and pray over your own souls, which he's going to direct them to later, but watch and pray for me as well. Pray that I would have strength. Pray that I would endure. Pray for me. And this is, in fact... The greatest hour of temptation in the life of Christ. We often think of the temptation of Christ in terms of, in Matthew's gospel anyway, chapter 4, when he was with Satan in the wilderness, with the hunger and the breads into stone, with the presumption of God throwing himself off of the temple, with gaining the nations illegitimately by the plan of Satan rather than his father. And he resisted each of those temptations. And indeed, that was a grueling resistance. He was hungry. He was tired. He would have liked to escape. And that's what uh, the realities of the cross. And in fact, that's what made the temptation to gain the nations in another way so strong. Because he didn't want, he knew that it was going to cost the cross. And here Satan was laying before him an option. And yet he was unwavering in his obedience. And But we think of that as the highlight of the temptation of Christ. But in fact, the highlight of Christ's greatest temptation is here. It's here, not in the desert of Judea, in the wilderness of Judea. But it's here in the garden of Gethsemane. It's here that he felt more than any other place in his life, the temptation to want to avoid what was before him. As a matter of fact, this is probably what the writer of Hebrews is referring to, uh, really undoubtedly in verses 7. Just listen as I read it. It says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. He was heard because of his piety. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. We don't get this here in Matthew, but there was such intensity of emotion there that the writer of Hebrews reminds us there there was a crying out to God. There was tears seeking his father in this most intense moment in his life. Never did he feel the weight and the temptation to avoid the cross as he did here. And never was this temptation to avoid the cross met with any, even the hint of sin in his heart, anything less than perfect obedience to the Father. No matter how intense the emotion. In fact, it is the very intensity of his emotion, the greatness of what he felt, that highlights the perfection of his obedience which stands in striking contrast to the disciples. Because he feels the intensity of the temptation, the intensity of the emotional revulsion of what lay in front of him, he, unlike the disciples, is diligent to keep watch. He does pray. He does seek the Father's face. Because he knows it's only by that strength that he can endure they, however, would be unable to stay up with him. In verse 40, says that he came to the disciples, we read it, and he found them sleeping. You couldn't keep watch with me for one hour? 
maybe one hour of time, but most likely it means in this moment, this time of distress. Again, in verse 43, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22 that part of the reason that they couldn't keep their eyes open wasn't only because it was late, not only because they just had a large meal, not only because they were tired, but they were overwhelmed with sorrow. Sorrow. We've mentioned this before, but they had been bombarded time and time again this very night with these truths that they really had very little capacity to fully understand. One of you is going to betray me. All of you are going to fall away. This cup is the blood of my covenant. And they were reeling, really, in all of this and feeling the weight of it and the emotion of it themselves. But instead of following the Lord's example of persevering in prayer, they fell asleep. And he, notice what he says in verse 40. He says, he said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch. And he is really addressing all of them, but he speaks directly to Peter because it was Peter who just made the most loud professions of faith and courage and boldness. And he's like, Peter, you're going to be bold and you're not going to deny me and you can't even keep awake after I just told you my soul is troubled distressed to the point of death? If you can't keep awake now, what makes you think that you're going to be able to stand when the temptation actually comes your way? Peter, think about, think about their situation and cry out to God. It's really a gentle nudge for the Lord, or from the Lord for Peter to take stock in his true weakness and seek grace from the Father in this hour. And so the deeper issue here really is this, that they failed to properly heed his warnings. And it's, it's really inexcusable. It's understandable in some ways, but it's inexcusable. Consider this, the Lord who never displayed even the smallest amount of weakness just tells them no doubt with great emotion in his voice that his own soul down to its core is grieved and he wants them to keep watch and they don't stay awake. How could that be? How could that be? And essentially then, what they did is they left him alone. They left him alone. He was all alone as he was facing these trials that were, in a sense, torturing his soul in this moment. Really what they did is they gave in to the flesh. He says the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. They failed to heed his warnings. And eventually their failure ended in what? Failure. Their failure to heed his warnings ended up in their failure to remain faithful to the Lord. In just the next section that we'll look at, Judas is going to come and what are they going to do? Just as he said, they're going to all desert him. They're going to all leave him alone. They're going to all abandon him. He knows that's coming. He knows that lays in front of him. And yet even in their failure, and just notice this as as really kind of a side note, but it's, it's here in the text for us is the tenderness of the Lord. It's really a a tender exhortation. And and though Christ is modeling perfect obedience and they're modeling failure for us, he uses it as an opportunity to teach them. He tells them, keep watching and praying. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's a tender exhortation that says, look, I know that your faith is real. I know that you 11 who are with me, remember Judas is gone. You love me. Your, Your faith is sincere. But you have to understand that the sincerity of faith in God's people resides with the weakness of our humanity, with the weakness of our sinful flesh. And so recognize that and be diligent to fight against it here using the weapon of prayer. Pray, watch, watch. And in fact, no doubt, Jesus gave them this warning so that after their failure they would be brought all the more to shame for their disregard of what he said and leaving him alone in that moment. But it's not to leave them in shame. It's so that they would learn the spiritual lesson to say, look, there is a spiritual battle that's going on here. The stakes are high. Be engaged in this battle and don't grow weary. Recognize where the weakness lies and don't try to do it in your own strength. Do it in my strength. 
And so where they failed, Jesus provided the perfect example of righteousness. So even here, he is being displayed as the perfect son of God in his obedience to the Father. And let me just make this brief suggestion. For them, it was sleeping. For them, it was being overwhelmed and giving in to fatigue or in all that they felt. For us, it may be a variety of other things. It may be giving into the flesh to waste our time in front of a TV or doing something that is meaningless rather than dedicating and being diligent those things that we know to spend time with the Lord in prayer. It may be that desire to get a little extra sleep in the morning rather than get up and spend that time that you know you need to spend with the Lord in prayer, in reading His Word. And for them, their failure to prepare left them to fail in the time of temptation. And beloved, I ask, how often does that happen to us? Our failure to prepare spiritually, to diligently seek the Lord leading to our failure in the time of testing. Peter learned his lesson. And when he talks in his epistle, he tells them, be sober, be sober in spirit, be watchful. Why? Because there's the devil prowling around like a roaring lion. And Peter can say that because he's going, yeah, you know what? I failed to that. I failed. I know what it's like. Don't do it. But here he is, though he warns them, even in his hour of greatest need, and he's left Alone, And so he gets no real companionship and strength from his friends. So he goes and he seeks the Father. Communion with the Father. And so it says in verse 39 that he went a little bit beyond them and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He fell on his face. And this again is an overwhelming display of what was going on in the heart of Christ here. This is the Son of God. This is the one who he just told them was going to return in the glory of his Father with the angels, who was going to establish his kingdom, who was going to judge the earth. And here he's so overwhelmed that he doesn't have the physical strength even to stand, and he falls on his face before the Father because of overpowering distress of soul. And the picture really is almost of this, that he leaves his disciples and, and almost, it's a stagger. It's almost a staggering, a weakened walk as he moves away from them about a stone's throw and then out of sight, he falls on his face. Luke twenty two forty four gives a little more insight into what's going on here. He says this, Being in agony, he was praying fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, some say what's going on there is it's not really blood, that he's just using that as a metaphor for sweating profusely, a lot of sweat going off. But that doesn't really fit the language here. More likely, what Luke is describing, who, if you'll remember, was a physician and would have noted these things, though he wouldn't have had this name for it, of course, was a condition called hematidrosis. And it's a condition that's documented now. I actually went through some medical journal to find out case studies of this. It's a documented case now which for there could be a variety of reasons that cause it, but one of the common reasons is intense emotion, intense fear or anxiety. And what happens is this, these blood vessels that are near the skin, they, they burst because of the, uh, they burst blood. And then when this person is sweating in the intensity of the emotion, that mixes together and then it falls to the ground. And so the idea here is that the intensity of emotion was so strong that Jesus was profusely sweating and such distress he felt that his capillaries burst and sweat and blood mixed together and fell as droplets to the ground. And so here's the point to notice in that. Is that the obedience of Christ was not easy. It wasn't flippant. In other words, he didn't go into the cross and the atonement and all that was associated with it with a detached mindset or this attitude of fearlessness. That's not the picture that we get. He didn't go into it with a sort of floating halo on his head as you see sometimes in the depictions of him in movies. That's not what's going on. He went into it at this moment with a sense of terror and a sense of horror and a sense of deep distress over what lay before him. As a matter of fact, one has said it this way. 
The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. Now eventually he overcame this and eventually he came to that place of unfailing determination that in verse 46 that got up and met his betrayer. But that's not what he was feeling at this point. He felt the full force of the weakness of his humanity. And yet even as great as this is, these moments in the garden, as, in, as intense as they are, they still pale in comparison to what was coming. What was coming on Golgotha, on the cross. Again, one said it this way, the same author. What is certain is that Golgotha was more awful than Jesus had envisioned in Gethsemane. He felt forsaken, that is in the garden, but he was forsaken on the cross. And even the intimate cry that he gives to the Father here with my Father, my Father, would change on the cross to be my God, my God. And so the point here is this. That Christ obeyed for us against the greatest possible temptation to avoid the cross. And the reason that it was the greatest possible temptation was because he understood it came with the greatest cost. The question is, why was Jesus so afraid? What made him feel such intense distress and agony? Was it the fear of the horrors of crucifixion? And in fact, we all know that crucifixion was one of the most horrible ways to die. It was one of the most torturous and shameful ways of all the inventions of men to put someone to death. Some of you may have heard those medical descriptions, and we'll get into more of this down the road, of all that was involved physically in the crucifixion of Christ. It's hard to listen to. And he knew that. He was aware of that. He knew of the shame that lied ahead from him. But is this what caused him such distress? If it is, then we would say he was less than even a common man. Because martyrs face that kind of death with more courage than what Jesus is displaying here. Peter, as a matter of fact, if you'll remember, when it was time for him to give up his life, tradition says, asked to be crucified upside down. Did Peter have more courage than the Son of God here? Did any of the martyrs throughout the church have more courage than the Son of God here? Did Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, when they stood before Nebuchadnezzar and the furnace, and who boldly and with courage were willing to be thrown in, have more courage than Christ himself? Did any of the martyrs that we read about? They had courage because they had the ministry of the Spirit within them. And of Jesus, it says he had the Spirit without measure. There was no limit to the resource of strength and power in his human soul. And yet, he can't even stand up to pray. He's so overwhelmed. And yet, his blood vessels are bursting bursting because of the intensity of the anxiety and the fear that he felt. What is it that he feared? It wasn't the physical punishment. What was it that caused him such distress? It was simply this. He knew what laid before him was the experience in his own soul of divine wrath of God against sin. Paul tells us that he would be made sin. Not that he would become a sinner, but that he would be made sin on the cross. He would be made to be in the Father's eyes the very embodiment of sin on the cross. Listen, he knew that when he was on the cross, he would in his own person be the very embodiment in the Father's eyes of everything that God hates. Everything that God abhors. Everything that provokes the wrath and the displeasure of God, he would become that. Shamefully hung before the eyes of men, even worse, he would be made the object of abhorrence in the Father's eyes. Though the sinless Son, he would be treated by the Father like the very embodiment of sin. And it is that reality that overwhelmed him. It overwhelmed him. It was too much in his humanity to bear. 
Look at what he says in verse 39. He says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What is this cup? It is just that. The cup is the imagery of divine wrath. It's the imagery of divine wrath. It's a well-chosen word. Listen to the way that's described in just a few places in the Old Testament. Just listen as I read. Psalm 75, verse 8 says this, the psalmist. Well, beginning in verse 7. But God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams and it's well mixed. And he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Must drain and drink down its dregs. The cups of God, the cup of God's wrath against them. Listen to Jeremiah 25:15 he says this for thus the lord the god of israel says to me take this cup the wine of my wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom i send you to drink from it they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that i will send among them this is the cup of divine wrath listen to revelation revelation chapter 14 verse 10 We know this is the account of God's pouring His judgment on the earth. And He says this. Beginning in verse 9. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is Christ's own hatred against this kind of sin. Everything in his holy nature abhorred the idea of sin. Everything in his holy countenance abhorred the idea of being made wickedness on the cross. He was the sinless son of God. He was the eternal son who knew that he would from his own father drink the cup of divine wrath against sin all the way down to its dregs as if he were the very embodiment of wickedness. And beloved, this is a mystery we simply cannot understand. We simply cannot understand. But I would suggest this. If we want to understand God's attitude towards sin... And not only his attitude towards sin, but the depth of his love for sinners is we need merely to look at Christ's own dread and horror at the thought of bearing it himself. What does God think of sin? You think of the Son of God fallen on his face in the garden, sweating drops of blood. That's what it is. You want to know what is the depth of God's love for us in Christ? You think of the Son of God in the garden pleading with the Father that if there were another way that it could come. It's only against that backdrop that we will understand the grace of the gospel. And I would suggest this as well. That true obedience is displayed only when the costs are the most high. The truest depth of our love for Christ, the truest depth of our obedience and reality of our faith is when we obey and it cost us the most. It cost us the most. And here is Christ who is facing in his humanity as the God-man a cost that is incalculable to our human minds. We simply cannot fathom it. There is no way that any act of obedience by a human being could come close to Christ's obedience here because there could be no cost as great as what Christ was going to pay here. This was the greatest conceivable act of obedience and love and submission to the Father that could possibly be expressed in humanity. It's here in the person of Christ. And so his obedience has a unique aspect to it. It is only his obedience that can be atoning. It is only his obedience that could be for us a substitute obedience. Only his. Only 
The sinless Son of God in flesh can know what it's like to obey the Father in light of bearing the sin of the world. And yet this is what he did. This is what he did. But I would also say, as Scripture tells us, that in another sense, his obedience is the model for his people. His obedience is the model for his people. You want to know what God requires and what God means when he says obedience? You look at Christ. You look at Christ. That's what obedience looks like. It's what obedience looked like. Against the temptations and the threats of the world, when our own flesh would cry out to run and to miss it, to somehow escape the reality of the cost of following Christ, our love for Him and the reality of our faith is displayed in this same act of submission that says, No, whatever the cost, I will follow Christ. True love for Christ, sincere love for Christ, is not displayed, listen, when following Him is easy. That displays nothing. Nothing. Our obedience is displayed when there is a price to pay. When obedience to Christ confronts our own desires, confronts our own plans, confronts our own love for sin, confronts anything within us, that we would rather do, it is in that moment and in that moment alone that the reality of our faith is demonstrated. When it costs us something. When it costs us something. Obedience to Christ does not mean the absence of suffering. It doesn't mean the absence of fear or rejection. It didn't mean that for Christ himself. In fact, our obedience to Christ may bring those things. Right? You will suffer to live righteously in this world. However, it is in that moment that the sincerity of faith and the purity of our love for Christ shines most brightly. And it is for that reason that the writer of Hebrews said he was perfected in obedience. What does that mean? Not that there was imperfection. It is to say this, that Christ's obedience against the greatest possible threat of the cost of it, or indeed the reality of it, was the greatest possible human obedience that could be offered, and he gave God that. He submitted to the Father. So the condition of his obedience was the greatest possible cost, the greatest possible suffering that would come as a result of it, and he would obey in either case. Now, why did he obey? And what characterizes his obedience? Let me note secondly then this, the character of Christ's obedience. Perfect submission to the Father. What enabled him to obey? Perfect submission to the Father. Perfect love for him and those to whom the Father or those whom the Father has given him. It was a perfect trust in the Father's plan and perfect. It was perfect uh, purpose. Perfect confidence in the outcome of his sacrifice. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, everything in the life of Christ was an act of obedience. So he said in John 14, 31... He told his disciples, he said this to them, and remember this was only hours before this scene, but he said in John 14, 31, he says this, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me, get up and let us go. So that the world might know that my love for the Father is real Everything that is commanded me, I do. And he did not do this then out of mere duty. He did not do this out of mere fear. He did not do this out of begrudging obligation. He did not obey because he had no choice. Jesus' obedience is the fruit of a perfect love to God and to man. Exactly what the law requires. A perfect, sinless, pure Love to the Father and love to man. And note the tenderness at which he relates to the Father during this. Look at again. He says, my Father, in verse 39. Verse 42, my Father, my Father. Mark 14, 36 says, he said, Abba, Father. A tender word of address from a child to the Father. This is the Father of whom he had perfect knowledge. He obeyed him not only out of a love that was 
somehow formed during his time on earth, but it was, in fact, an eternal love, an eternal love. He'd say, again, just hours before this, in John 17, 24, as he was praying to the Father, he would say, you loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the foundation of the world. So he's coming here to the Father in the most intimate terms and realization of the eternal and complete and pure and perfect love that the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. It was the Father whom he loved, the Father by whom he had always been loved, the Father who alone he, from whom alone he could have any relief, it was that same Father that he's seeking that was going to be the cause of the pain. And that heightens it even more. The tenderness and the reality of his love for the Father makes the suffering that would come from his hand all the more grievous. Remember what Isaiah looked forward to? The Father would be pleased to crush him if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Not because he delighted only in the suffering of the Son, but because he delighted in what that sacrifice meant, and it was an atonement for the sin of his people that he gave to his Son. And so Christ here demonstrates then perfect submission to the Father. Perfect submission to the Father. My food is to do the will of him who sent me, he said in John 4, and to accomplish his work. And what I want to highlight here specifically is this. It's the perfection of Christ's humanity. And this is not, then, a picture of conflict within the Trinity. Don't think for a moment that Jesus is here wanting something different than what the Father wants. That would be to misread the passage. He's not wanting something different than the Father wants. He's not conflicting with the Father's will. It is simply one of the most clear and determinative passages in all of Scripture that demonstrates the full reality of the Son's humiliation and is taking on the full experience of humanity. That He might overcome that temptation in the full experience of the weakness of humanity to be a merciful, a sympathetic high priest in Hebrews chapter 4. But what he displays this, even in spite of knowing what would come from the hand of the Father, was perfect, unfailing love and submission of heart, yielding to the purpose of God, showing the weakness he felt in the contemplation of it. But, beloved, weakness itself is not sin. Human weakness is not sin. Giving in to weakness is sin. Being complicit with that weakness is sin. But being weak from a lack of trust of God, is sin. But Jesus had none of that weakness. This was merely the human reality of knowing what he was going to face. He struggled against the temptation. And though he was dazed by the reality of what laid before him, he never, underline that, he never wavered from perfect obedience to the Father. Never His love for the Father never failed. Never. Even in the midst of his going to the Father, he says, not as I will, but you will. That was not an attitude he came to at the end. It was the attitude he went into the prayer with and he maintained. Not my will. Not my will. Your will. Your will. If there's any other possible way, I'm open to it, Father. But I am ultimately submitted to your will. He said in Mark 14, 36, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. In Luke 22, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now, Jesus knew that it was not possible. He knew that. As a matter of fact, he'd already said that in John chapter 12. He'd said, What shall I say? Say, Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He knew that. Guess what? He was in the eternal counsels of the Godhead when the plan of salvation was made. When the Father chose a people in Christ before he created anything. He knew that. The question wasn't doubt. What's going on then? How in the world could he make this kind of request? And again, I would suggest to you this. It is because in his humanity that he fully took on to himself 
submitted himself as the eternal son of God to the experience of, he was dazed. He was so overwhelmed with the thought of it that he simply was crying out to God in the greatest expression of his human weakness. Not distrust, not rebellion, not lack of love, only feeling the weight of it. Calvin even suggests that his prayer reflects a kind of vacillation going from one wish to another because of the confusion that had come on his mind in that moment of great emotion. Now, interestingly, though he had no friends, he did have, who were with him, an angel that was sent to comfort him, but even that wasn't enough. But what we see here is the perfect submission of the Son. Not as I will, but as you will. If this cup can't pass away, your will be done. Not what I will, but you will. Luke twenty two forty two. your will be done. This is perfect, sinless submission to the will of the Father. It is the perfect obedience of Christ. And it is the perfect righteousness attained for us and our salvation. And yet, how was he able to do this? And how could we even model this? Well, we suggested that. Let me remind you. He perfectly trusted the Father. Even though he knew what was coming, even though he had this moment of weakness, he perfectly trusted the Father. First Peter 2 says this. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and he himself bore our sins on the cross. Even in the weakness, he never lacked trust in the Father. He never doubted the Father. It was born out of a perfect desire for the Father's glory. We already read it. Father, glorify your name, he said in John 12, when this cup wasn't going to pass away. Glorify your name. He wanted that glory, even here in his weakness, he wanted the Father to be glorified. Perfect obedience. He had perfect confidence and hope that what his death would accomplish. Hebrews 12 tells us, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He despised the shame, but he knew the shame was not the end, that it was to be with the Father. It was to be with the glory he had before the foundation of the world with the Father. It was to be with the people that he would purchase with his own blood. You know what else? It was also because of his perfect love. For his people. It was also for his perfect love for his people. He loved them. John 13 tells us he loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. And he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Why did he do it? Because of his love for Adam, his love for Eve, his love for Abel, his love for Seth. His love for Enoch, his love for Abraham, his love for Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and Ruth and David and the disciples, his love for the hemorrhaging woman that he met along the way, his love for the demoniac where he cast out the demons, his love for Peter who was going to fail him but whom he would restore, his love for Paul, his love for the Syrophoenician woman, his love for Lydia, the seller of purple fabrics, his love for the 3,000 that would believe on the day of Pentecost, his love for you and his love for me if you've known him. That's what kept him there. His love for the Father, his love for his own, his love for his people. And Christ loves all men, but he has a particular redeeming love for those who are a gift to him from the Father. For those who are a gift to him from the Father. And this love compelled him to obey. He loved the Father and he loved those given to him by the Father. And so he endured. It is in this love that Christ displays that the love of God is most displayed to us. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It is an eternal love. I want you to notice this as well, too. In his love, he knew that there was no other way, that this was how he would have to accomplish salvation. He knew that there was no other way. He had already said in Matthew chapter 20, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. 
In Luke 24, afterwards, after the resurrection, he said, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And so when he goes to the Father here and he says, If it is possible, or if you are willing, or if there is another way, the answer was, and he knew this answer before he asked, No, not possible. There is no other way. There's no other way for this to happen. There's no other way for God's holiness and his justice to be upheld in the expression of his love. And you cannot separate those things. His love is not an emotional love. It is not a whimsical love. It is a holy love. It is a love in which the demands of justice are met and the fulfillment of his grace is extended. It's a love that must uphold justice. It's a love that must punish the offenses of his image bearers. There's no other way and he knew that. And let me suggest to you then that the cross destroys the idea that there is any or that there is some chance that there's a better good in us than an evil. That will somehow over that God will somehow see that greater good and accept us in the end. Now the Christian knows that, but if anybody would have that thought, I would suggest to you that you need to consider what Christ had to endure for the salvation of men. He had to endure punishment. He had to endure it. Let's just briefly note verse 46. He says, or verse 45, after this is over, he came to his disciples and noticed the confidence of his obedience. He says here this, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. He'd already now come through the gauntlet of fear, his perfect obedience, his perfect submission, his perfect love to the Father displayed. And now he goes with an unfailing and a perfect confidence. A confidence. Rise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me at hand. John 18, 11 says this, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? In other words, this was a moment that he had as he faced the reality of the cross, but his perfect submission to the Father was complete throughout and has its glorious display in the absolute confidence at which he got up from his knees, he walked away from the prayer, and he walked toward his betrayer. And he took his disciples with him. There was a progress of confidence. He was the one who watched and he prayed and he was then victorious and without sin. He didn't cower. He didn't hide. He didn't move away from his betrayer. He didn't go to the cross shaking and nervous and crying out of fear. He went to the cross in the full, resolute confidence of obedience to his father. And he laid his life down by his own initiative. Because by commandment of the Father, he laid his life down and he'd take it up again. John chapter 10. So though he had this moment, and though this was the greatest temptation he would ever feel, it was one that he overcame in absolute perfection. And he did this for sinners. And so I would suggest to us then that this is Proof with everything else that there is no other way to be saved other than through the cross, through Christ who endured it for us. I would say then that if you want to know what it means to love your wife as Christ loves the church, you look at the Garden of Gethsemane. If you want to know the kind of love that should be evident among us as the people of God, you look at Christ who laid down his life as a sacrifice for us. If you want to know what obedience looks like in the face of adversity, you look at Christ who went to the cross though he was crying out and sweating drops of blood, but he obeyed because of trust in the Father. That's what it looks like. That's what spiritual life looks like. That's what the reality of Christ in us looks like. If you have Christ in you, then the basic attitude of your life is to obey the Father. It could be no other way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's no other way. There's no other way. And if you have not yet known Christ, then what does the garden tell us? It tells us this, that the call to follow Christ is this. It's a call to come and to die. It's a call to come and die. You die to yourself. 
You die to your dreams, you die to your self-will, you die to this world, and you say, Christ, I would have you and give up everything else. That's the call to faith. If you want to grow in Christ and know him ever increasingly, that is the attitude you develop. And as he was to the disciples, so to us, he is a gracious savior. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And while Christ was here to endure this alone, he, in our obedience to him, walks with us as a gentle and a merciful savior, as our redeemer. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the way that you have displayed your glory in our salvation. We thank you, our Lord, for the cross. And in that moment, we can rightly say that as the man Christ Jesus, in the full experience of your redeeming love for us and humanity, you willed our salvation. Your perfect submission was for you the cross, and for us it was and is salvation. Fill our hearts with your glory. May our lives demonstrate your life. And I do pray, oh, we do pray that those we love here and afar that don't yet know you, that they would count the cost. For if you, having a perfect side of what lied ahead, understood what the cost of sin was that you would bear, what must it be for those who reject you? We pray, that, we pray that none here would be in that condition and that for all of us here who know you that our lives would live in the glorious anticipation of being with you who died and rose again for us and that our lives would model that same joyful obedience to you that you gave to the Father for us. We pray in your magnificent name, amen.